0: Rob Lewis and I serve down at the Calvary campus, and uh, I've been able to preach there pretty much every Sunday for the last uh, two and a half, three years. And I am very much honored to be able to fill the pulpit once again here at the Owasso campus. Every once in a while, they let me come over here and hang out, so I'm thankful for that. Uh, we have been in this series that focuses on the stories of Jesus, um, particularly the parables that were found in Luke. And last week we uh, took a look at this idea of the banquet. And, and what's interesting is when you look at that, there's a whole lot going on. And what we have to notice is that there was an invitation that went out, but when it was time for the banquet to be had, many of them excused themselves. And what we, what we learned from that was this idea that simply believing in God is not enough. We have to accept the invitation. We have to actually show up and be at the banquet with christ and and what we said was that anyone who does not eat with christ will not eat at all and where we left it was that many people may make excuses to keep away from christ but only those who actually accept christ profess him and trust in him will be at the wedding banquet but at the same time what god does is he goes to the highways to the alleys and the country roads to seek out and invite anyone and everyone to come and be at the banquet. And that's where we left off last week. In keeping with this theme, we're still in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to take a look at this parable that's related to this lesson on prayer. And so what we're going to take a look at this morning is this beautiful and important practice that I believe is vital to the Christian life, and that's the practice and discipline, the spiritual discipline of prayer. Yet, I think many of us can, can relate in this idea that sometimes our prayers don't really feel that strong. Our prayers feel like weak and feeble things. And I think that's a natural part of, of, of what it's like to be human, to live in a fallen and distracted, broken world. Um, and today we're going to unpack this scripture and do our best to learn a few things from the Lord's Prayer specifically, but also walk away with some practical application um, that I believe will help us in our 21st century as we struggle with this idea of how do we pray. And so this morning I wanted to defend the doctrine that the Christian life is lived through prayer. The Christian life is lived through prayer. And I believe that's twofold, both private and corporate. And every revival that has come about has been the product of first private white-hot prayers that then transfer into corporate white-hot prayers. And then when the corporate prayers are white-hot, God breaks out revival. And it's kind of funny in our day, and I'm not going to get too much into this, but you kind of can't really schedule or plan a revival. I know sometimes we do that. Sometimes we we try. Um, But you know what? It really comes from the people of God praying for the will of God to be done and we submit and when we say, as that song we just sang, I surrender all. Do you know what we're signing up for when we actually say that? The, the first line of it, I didn't sing it because I'm like, do I really? And I'm not sure I do, and I'm, I'm not trying to go into that right now, but that was just this morning, just sitting here. So prayer literally is an exercise of going to God and saying, not my will, but your will. And how do we do that? How do we unpack that? And what does that look like? But I believe if we do, if we do come to the Father with hearts like that, desiring these petitions to be granted, man, it changes the game. It changes us, and it changes the world we live in. So I want to plant that seed. We're going to look through some petitions here. And as we look at these petitions, I want you to ask yourself, do I desire these petitions to be granted? Okay? Got that? All right, I want to put on the screen something that's... a uh, kind of a showstopper, if you will, from one of my favorite theologians of old, Robert Murray McShane, and he says, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. What a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. Yet so often what we try to do is we try to imagine the Christian life without prayer. We try to imagine the Christian life um, being something that may include prayer time to time, but is not necessarily essentially dependent upon prayer. Robert Murray McShane would have us have none of that. He says, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing else. And whenever I read that the first time, I thought, "Oh, oh, man. Because I think many of us can relate when we actually look at our prayers. Our prayers are pretty self-centered. A lot of times when we pray, we're not asking for the will of God to be done. We're actually saying, here, God, I've thought this out. And here's a pretty good plan I think you should endorse, right? That's kind of what we do is, say, man, I've been thinking a lot about this. Talked with a couple friends. Here's the plan, Lord. I just, I don't want you on the outside of the loop. I want you on the inside. I want you to understand what we've gotten going here. Come along. Let me show you, right? But Jesus says, here's another way, all right? And the three stops we're going to make this morning as we unpack this idea of, of prayer, focusing on the Lord's Prayer we see modeled with Jesus Christ, is we're going to take a look at the highlights in the Lord's Prayer, and then we're also going to focus on thanksgiving. I think it's fitting for this morning, but there's some cool stuff that I believe um, we can glean from the Scripture uh, as well. And then the third stop will be thoughts on prayer and practice. So the highlights of the Lord's prayer, a focus on thanksgiving, and thoughts on prayer and practice. And what's interesting is if we start off right away in verse 1, it says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, let's stop there. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. What we have to recognize, and not go too quickly and skip over this, is that Jesus Christ, who was in very nature God, took time to pray. And if Jesus Christ, who is in very nature God, saw his life dependent upon private prayer, what we should do as Christians is model this. And it's such a beautiful image because what he's done is he's modeling this private practice of prayer. Because it seems to be that these disciples were observing Jesus exercising and modeling private prayer. And then when Jesus had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. So that something that they had observed, they knew something was going on there. And we don't get the picture that they were actually on the inside here. It's not like they were sitting there and Jesus is giving a seminar on prayer. And he's like, okay, repeat after me. All right, boys, good job. What are we going to do today? It's he's off by himself but they, could, they still know what he's doing. And then they ask, Jesus, teach us to pray. So the model is, is that 11 times we see through Luke, Jesus prays. And so we see all throughout Scripture, but even just specifically in Luke, there's at least 11 times where Jesus Christ himself is praying. And this should give us pause if we believe that the Christian life is anything but a life lived through prayer because Jesus himself lived his life through prayer. And if there's anyone in the world who, who had a grasp on things, it was Jesus. The life that Jesus lived and the life that we live are two different lives, yet in every way he, he, he was human. He was as we are, yet without sin. But he fully was dependent upon his sweet private time with his Father. And so we've got to look at that. But then here's another interesting thing. It says, Teach us to pray, comma, as John taught his disciples. Now isn't that interesting? John who? John the Baptist. So there's this guy, John the Baptist, who comes and prepares the way for Christ. And in a lot of ways, we recognize John the Baptist as the last Old Testament prophet uh, because he makes the way for uh, Jesus Christ, who would come after him. Now, they were cousins, and there's some interesting things going on with that. But John had disciples. He had followers. And we can remember even his, his followers going and asking and saying, is, is this? Are you the one? We, we, see this, we see this interaction. But John, according to Scripture, we see taught his disciples to pray, and so Jesus' disciples says to Jesus, hey, we know that John has taught his folks how to pray, when are we gonna get that training? Right, it's like that, it's like, I know that this training's been dealt to somebody else, can you teach us? And so it's an interesting thing to look look at that, but also, if you were to turn back to actually Luke chapter five, verse 33, we won't stay there very long, if you want to, you can turn there with me. Luke five thirty three. It's an interesting thing to look at here because when you put that idea in, in context, uh, it's actually there's a question about fasting and the Pharisees are asking about uh, fasting and Jesus' opinion and all this good stuff. And what had happened was Jesus was eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees didn't like this. So verse 33 in chapter 5 of Luke, it says, And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often... And offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. (laughs) This is jab to Jesus, is like the disciples of John do some good things, the disciples of the Pharisees do some good things, but your disciples are wild. They just eat and drink with sinners. So we see this idea when we put that in context in eleven, when these disciples say John taught his disciples to pray, we take from scripture that this was a public thing. People knew about this. And even the Pharisees knew that this was the type of life that the disciples of John lived because they used it as a jab against Jesus. See, John's, John's disciples are better than yours. They fast and they pray. Yours, eat and drink with sinners. And Jesus obviously has a response to that, and that's not the topic for today. But what's interesting is just like John has taught his disciples to pray. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. And I, it doesn't take very long for us to do a, a quick survey, but um, if you got to learn how to pray from John or you got to learn how to pray from Jesus, which one would you sign up for? Which course would you take, Jesus or John, right? I think every one of us would sign up for the master's class, right? Straight up, let's get, let's get Jesus' opinion on this. So these disciples get the master's class from the master. How should we pray? So I want to take a couple of of, of looks, a look at a couple of the highlights from this. He says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. I want to stop right there. What we have to slow down and recognize is the very first word there, Father. And this is interesting because this really only applies to believers. Only believers can call God Father. And when we think of Father, we have to recognize that we are no longer enemies of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is an interesting thing because part of this, when we think of of, of Father, there's there's the other idea that that it doesn't say here explicitly in the ESV version, but I know that um, other translations include it, our... So our, we should think of others, we are siblings in this. But then father, we should think of adoption and regeneration. And I know you're thinking, man, you're a little hard-pressed to get all that out of one word. But it is implicit. You can't call God father unless you've been adopted through regeneration. So the only people who can address God, the creator of the universe, as father are those who have been adopted through His Son, Jesus Christ. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, been regenerated, been born from above. Now, you're born from above, yes. The right way to address the Creator of the universe is to say, Father, Abba. But you can't get that unless you have been adopted. So when you read Father, when you pray Father, do not forget that you can only do that because you've been adopted. Right then, think about the gospel. Right then, think about regeneration. It says, Our Father, hallowed be your name. And that's not a word that we use very often, but the basic idea is, is holy be your name. This idea of sanctum, or sanctity, or sanctification, we know those words. This is an interesting thing when we when we think about holiness. It is otherness. It is separate. And actually, this evening, I get to preach here tonight on the doctrine of the holiness of God. But here, when you look at this, this is a petition. This is the first petition of the prayer. I don't know if you've ever stopped and thought about this as a petition, but this is the petition. The basic ask is, God our Father... May your name be seen as holy, and may your name be revered. That's the ask. It's the petition. The first petition asked, the first petition put forward, is may you be honored. May you be seen as holy. And that first petition is the foundation for the second petition, which is, and may your kingdom come. His kingdom come is not independent of he being revered. And seen as holy. And so when we pray that the will of God be done, your kingdom come, I know my translation is a little lacking this morning, but your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's other places where it's more expansive than what we have here, but we know that's part of the Lord's Prayer. How can you say to God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Your kingdom come, and last first, the people who would make up that kingdom, recognize the king. Do you get that? We first have to set apart God as our holy king, and then we ask for his kingdom to be on earth as it is in heaven. So the first petition is the foundation for the second petition. The first petition, let us see you as holy and let us revere you. Second, as part of that, may your kingdom come. That's not us making it happen. He brings his kingdom because he is the almighty God of the universe. Yet his kingdom includes us as his subjects, honoring and revering him and welcoming his lordship. He's not the king we don't want. He's the king we love and admire. And when we pray, your kingdom come, we say, willingly rule over us. Can you say that? I asked you at the beginning, do you want... And do you desire these petitions to be granted? The idea, if you got to set out and say, okay, I'm going to come up with some rules, I'm going to come up with, uh, you know, redo the Constitution, what would I include in that? Would you include that we would see God as holy, set Him apart in our hearts, desire these first two petitions to be granted? Would you waste a sentence or two on that. It's an interesting thing to wrestle through. Our Father, we remind ourselves of adoption and regeneration. Hallowed be your name. We set God apart as holy and we admire his purity and his holiness. And this is so beautiful. But then it goes into the daily bread. It says, give us our daily bread. Well, what does that mean? Well, first off, it's a petition the provision of God. But when we pray, it's right for us to request things from God, but also never forgetting that he is going to provide. It's the providence of God, what we call the providential care. And so there's two forms of God's providential care. There's God's general providence, which means that he sends the rain on the just and the unjust alike. He takes care of the birds of the field, the flowers of the field. You see this general providential care of God. But then there is a particular or specific providential care in which you and me are cared for, particularly by God our Father. And it's a beautiful thing because we pray collectively. When we say our Father, we care and we think for others and we pray for others we pray for the world, we pray for our leaders, we pray, we pray that, that, that things would go well, that evil would be suppressed, and that people would have their needs met, but then we're reminded that He particularly provides and cares for us, that He, in a unique way, like no one else in the world knows, He knows our future, and when we doubt, and when we stress out, what we're literally saying is we're saying, God, I know what you don't know. What we're really saying is, I know what the future is, and the future is bad. That's why I'm worried about it. So we're telling him that we know something. We have some factual information, and it's worth worrying about. But actually, we have no idea what the future holds. How many of us have been surprised? If you've ever been surprised, it's just evidence that you don't know the future. But God uniquely knows the future, not only does he know the future, he's ordained our steps. He's prepared the good works that we should walk in. But not only that, he has considered everything, and he's working all things for good. For our good and for his glory. So when we ask for our daily provisions, when we ask God give us each day our daily bread, There's two things that are going on there. We trust God for his provision, and we expect him to take care of us because he is our father. And in that, I think it's right for us to also include that when we ask for these simple things, that we also recognize both his general providential care and his particular providential care. He cares for the whole world, and he cares for you and me in a particular specific way. And he's going to take care of us for our good and his glory. All right. Then, verse 4. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. This is an interesting one, isn't it? Because what's happening here is, is is there's another petition, and this is a prayer and petition for forgiveness. And I don't believe that this is necessarily talking about the first time. You know, when we came to Christ, obviously the part of part of uh, the salvific experience when we are saved, when we are converted, when we are regenerated, um, whatever you want to, however you want to say that, there is an element in that where we, for the first time, say, Father, I have sinned against you, and I repent, I confess, and I repent. Those go together. Faith and repentance can never be separated. I know that's a little bit of a a tense ground, and it's only recently that's been attention. Historically, those two have always been recognized. And if you look at the Baptist faith and message, which is not a creed, but it is a guide, it will also tell you that faith and repentance cannot be separated. But here's an interesting thing. When we look at this, he's saying, he's, he's literally saying, forgive us our sins. And I don't believe that this is a once-for-all prayer. I believe that this is an ongoing prayer. And a part of the Christian life, when we say that the Christian life is a life lived through prayer, it includes confessing and repenting our sins over and over and over. Not the same sins over and over as if they were not forgiven, because that would be mistrusting the forgiveness of God. That would be becoming a slave to your past. And that's not the point, but the point is, is sanctification, sanctum, holiness, is continual and gradual. And as you continue to be made aware of the ways in which you are not holy, there you confess and repent and ask for forgiveness. And that process continues until the day you die. And I will argue with you that this is not optional. Part of the Christian life is a continual work of God inside of you to continually conform you to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. It's not our works. It's not us self-reforming. It is the work of the Holy Spirit who abides in you. But what does He do? The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins. But not only that, remember the scripture, Paul says, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work on you will carry it on to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. That means the Christian life includes continual confession and repentance. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And so what we see here is a proportion, if you will. And I know this is difficult for us to live out, but it is the call that we should forgive in proportion to the forgiveness we have received. And one of the things that I've found personally uh, helpful is that whenever I hear of anyone's sin, as Jonathan Edwards actually said it, I think I got it from him, to imagine myself committing that sin. For there's no sin that anyone has committed that I am above. There's no sin that any one of my brothers or sisters has committed that I am not susceptible to as well and when we put ourselves in that, now we say there is no hierarchy here, there is no I am more moral than you, it's every one of us are on the same ground, and it enables us to therefore remember that we have been forgiven, and those who are forgiven much love much. From that, what we can start to do is exercise this actual practice of releasing control. And that is incredibly difficult for us, because forgiveness literally is a surrender of control in a sense. You have every right when you are offended to exact justice. When someone sins against you, I'm not, I'm not talking in the world of Christianity because that's not true, but we know, hey, you throw a punch, I'm justified in returning it. I know that if you've done me wrong, I can get this self-justification to do you wrong, to respond, a tooth for a tooth, an eye for an eye. We can do that. But we know what actually happens when we forgive, when someone sins against us and they come and they ask for forgiveness, what we literally are saying is, I could hold this over you, I could exact payment from you, but I will not. And that's the exact same thing that God does to us. He says, I could hold this over you, and I could exact payment from you, but I will not. That is the gospel. And so when we are actually looking at this prayer, and this becomes part of our prayers, which it should be, we ask God to forgive us, and then we are reminded, I believe, of Ephesians 4, where it says, be kind and tender towards one another, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. So our tenderness is rooted in forgiveness, and our forgiveness of others is rooted in first God forgiving us. We don't forgive because we're great people. We forgive because we are broken people who have been forgiven. And it's the same thing when we preach the gospel, we mess up evangelism when we go out and we say, here's evangelism, you're wrong and I'm right and I'm here to change your mind. Evangelism should be, I am broken and here's where I've found healing and hope and I offer it to you because it's a really, really bad place to live with all of your guilt and shame and no place to take it. That's evangelism, not you're an idiot unless you agree with me. So too, that's forgiveness, not I'm superior to you and I'm so good and I've got my stuff so together that I'm able to offer you forgiveness. It's man, I too have been forgiven much. I know what it's like to be forgiven. So I offer you forgiveness. That's a game changer. Which goes right into the fifth. And lead us not into temptation. So part of our prayer life ought to include asking God to deliver us from temptation. Because there's a difference between trials and temptation. And I wish I had more time to unpack this. But trials are the things that God can send us and can send our way to test us, to build us up, to get us to recognize some things. But temptation is always meant for destruction. Satan tempts, God tests. There's a difference between those two. God tempts no one. Scripture is clear about that. But what we should pray is we should pray, God, lead us not into temptation. For there really is warfare. There really is spiritual warfare that's going on. And part of our prayer life ought to include asking God to deliver us and to keep us from this. With the short amount of time I have left, I want to move on to our last two points. And I want to, t- I want to take a look at this interesting idea of, of, of thanksgiving. Uh, David Osgood, in 1794, delivered a sermon called, The Wonderful Works of God Ought to be Remembered. And it's really an interesting thing. And in that sermon, uh, he, he, he really gives this beautiful image of a historical perspective on American Thanksgiving. And sometimes we don't really know where it came from. We just think, oh, one day people showed up and the crops were plentiful, And they said, oh, I guess, hey, next Thursday, it's Sunday. What are you guys doing Thursday? You want to have, have lunch? That's not what happened. What had happened was that these people were intentional in the spring to pray for the harvest in the fall. They literally said, let us put our God to the test, let us pray, and then in the spring, let us remember his good works. So this Thanksgiving, think about that. When we pray, we ought to pray like this, because Thanksgiving, the holiday, is based in intentional prayer. It's such an interesting thing to look look at and to consider that every year, literally, what what Thanksgiving, if you the whole the full definition or the full name of it, it's not just Thanksgiving. It's called the annual day of Thanksgiving. Every year you should be giving thanks to God for his wonderful works that ought to be remembered. It's not just the time to hang out and overeat, even though that's a lot of fun. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the old Roman culture. They had a really crazy party scene. They have these big pits dug outside, and you'd eat and eat and drink and drink, and you get so sick, and you go puke your guts out in the hole so that you could come back in and eat more. Don't do that. That's definitely paganism. But there is there is a goodness to eating and enjoying. But let us not forget, this day, annual Thanksgiving is a yearly stop. To remember the good works of God. And that's exactly what it's based in. And so I believe when we pray, part of our prayers ought to be intentional in the sense that we ask for something, but then we expect God to respond. And I want to put it on the screen for you because I believe this. It is a very poor thing to go to God to make a request and then fail to acknowledge God when He responds. Don't pray like that. Don't say, here's what's really important to me, And then never bring it up again. And then when he answers the prayer, you're oblivious to it. Have you ever had that happen? I have. And it's a poor thing to do. It's a poor habit to get into. Prayer with intention. Pray, intentionally reflecting on it. So as you have time this year, I want you to think about that, but I want to finish our time with some practical thoughts on prayer and practice with this, be intentional. Remember that prayer glorifies God. Because I think sometimes we can feel like we're dead in the water. You know, I imagine a sailboat that's not going anywhere. I think that's kind of what we feel like in our prayers sometimes. We're just, we're here. We're not really going anywhere. We're in the boat, God, but not headed anywhere. That's what it means to be unintentional in our prayer, and I think there's some things that can feed into this, um, but sometimes what we do is we don't be intentional, and prayer just becomes this thing that's optional to our Christianity, and by that, we don't prepare for it, so I think one of the practical things we should do is prepare for it. Two things. When we sigh, I always say this to myself. When I sigh, doing you go through the day something hits, you, and you're like... That is an indicator that you need to pray. And maybe right then you don't have the time or the opportunity to stop and spend a full whatever it is you need to do work with the Lord. But write that down. When you sigh, take note. But then not only that, you should persist in it. Don't pray once. Let your persistence in be prayer a demonstration of your true concern for the matter. And that's what we actually see in this parable. Jesus says that it's not because this guy's your friend that he's going to answer the door at midnight to give you three loaves of bread. It's because you won't stop beating on his door that he's going to get up and give you some bread. Jesus is inviting us to beat on the door of God's house at midnight. So when we pray, be intentional, prepare for it, persist in it but then also reflect on it. Pray, and then in in the meantime, allow God to search you. In between our asking and God's answering is a time of searching, where God asks us, how important is this to you? And if there's something else that will satisfy, but is more in line with my will, will that work? So we must reflect on it. And as we close this morning, I want to lead you through a little acronym, and I've said it here before, but it's ACTS. Admiration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. We should start our prayers by admiring God. Follow that up by confessing our sins. And don't just be general. Don't just tell God your safe sins. Literally tell God exactly where you went wrong. And then follow that up with thanksgiving, which is, thank you for forgiving me. And then we can do supplication and expect God to give us good things because he says that if a father knows how to give his son good gifts and you're evil, how much more can our Holy Father give us good things? But this is a, this is a fourfold process that I have found very beneficial throughout my years. But as, as we close this morning... Going back to the sailboat analogy, maybe you are dead in the water because, and I want to put two things out there, two practical things with the minute and 13 seconds I've got left. Maybe you are dead in the water, write this down, because of sin. Neglecting sin in your life is one way to be dead in the water. I can't tell you how many meetings I've had with people who are stuck in sin. I've been stuck in sin and I can tell you during those days I was not praying. The last thing I wanted to do was to talk to God. I felt like God was judging me. I felt like God was angry with me. And that was a false view of the gospel. But let it be known that prayer will be killing sin or sin will be choking out prayer. I think John Owen said that. That's true. So maybe you're dead in the water because unrepentant sin in your life. I've sat, I sat across a uh, table from a guy one time, and he was telling me about how he had done all these things and wasn't repentant. And I said, are you praying right now? I knew he wasn't praying. But I said, are you praying right now? He goes, no way. Exactly. So unrepentant sin to Sabbath. Neglecting the Sabbath rest directly impacts your prayer life. We are so busy, we don't have time to think, much less pray. So we are going into Thanksgiving week, and here's the challenge, the practical, I want to give to you, and I'm going to take it myself. Let this week be a week filled with prayer, because with rest, there comes the affording opportunity to pray more. And, and schedule some time. Block out a couple of hours this next week when you can pray. And then I, I ask you to write down those prayers. Don't just say them and forget them, don't do that. Write them down and say, God, I'm going to persist in these things and I'm gonna reflect on them. If it has to be next Thanksgiving, whatever, doesn't matter. But you should write your prayer down, persist in that prayer, and then never neglect following up on it because God answers every prayer. You know it's the old cliche thing, sometimes he says, Yes, no, or not now. Yeah, well, okay, I think, I think that can be part of it. But you know what? I believe God answers our prayers in the way that we would have asked our prayers if we know what God knows. I know that's hard to follow. It's at the end of the sermon. Imagine asking for the things that are perfectly in line with God's will. God will answer our prayers that way. But what's interesting is when we reflect on how he answered our prayer, we learn two things. One about ourselves, because the nature of our prayers tell us a lot about ourselves, and the way God answers our prayers tells us a lot about God. So don't miss that opportunity to learn about yourself and to learn about our Heavenly Father. All right, let's close the stand.